Welcome to another episode of Fill in the Blank. I'm joined with Evan Ewing. Take two. Take two. Operation <laughs> Frankton, Evan. What comes to your mind when I say Operation Frankton? Military fuckery is what I think. Well, Operation Frankton was a commando raid on the shipping in the German-occupied French port of Bordeaux in southwest France during the Second World War. The raid was carried out by a small unit of Royal Marines known as the Royal Marines Boom Patrol Detachment, the RMBPD. Part of a combined operations inserted by HMS Tuna, N-94, captained by Lieutenant Commander Dick Rakes, who earlier had been awarded the DSO for operations while in the commando of submarine HMS Seawolf would be also known as the Special Boat Service. So the plan was for six kayaks, called canoes by the British, to be taken to the area of Girardi Estuary by submarine. The 12 men would then paddle by night to Bordeaux. On arrival, they would attack the docked cargo ships with limpet mines and then escape overland to Spain. Twelve men from Number 1 section were selected for the raid, including the commanding officer, Herbert Blondie Hassler, and with the reserve Marine Collie, the total of the team outnumbered 13. So one canoe was damaged while being deployed from the submarine, and its crew therefore could not take part in the mission. Only two of the ten men who launched from the submarine survived the raid. Hassler and his number two in the canoe, Bill Sparks, of the other eight six were executed by the Germans while two died of hypothermia. So the whole summary of this, Operation Frankton was a British to attack German subs and bomb them with by using of use of canoes. So a bunch of men in six different canoes, traveling with only mines and bombs, bombing these ships to take them out because they were supplying, they were getting trading resources for the war. They were trying to prevent their war efforts from expanding by limiting the resources that we're getting to them. Sounds like big brain shit. It's definitely, uh, <laughs> someone Someone went through the uh, time uh, to devise this little plan, because it's, it's an experience. Well, the, the background behind the plan, the Royal Marines Boom Patrol Detachment, also known as the RMBPD, was formed on the 6th of July, 1942, and based at South Sea Portsmouth. The RMBPD was under the command of the Royal Marines Major Herbert Blondie Hassler, with Captain J.D. Stewart as second-in-command. The detachment consisted of 34 men and was based at Lump's Fort, and often exercised in the Portsmouth Harbor and patrolled then harbor boom at nights. The Bay of Biscus Port of Bordeaux was a major destination for goods to support the German war effort. In the 12 months from June 1941 to 1942, vegetable and animal oils, other raw materials, and 25,000 tons of crude rubber had arrived at the port. Hassler submitted a plan of attack on the 21st of September 1942. The initial plan called for a force of three canoes to be transported to the Grody Estuary by submarine, then paddle by night and hide by day until they reached Bordeaux 60 miles from the sea, thus hoping to avoid the 32 mixed Kriegsman Marine ships that patrolled or used the port. 
On arrival, they hoped to sink between 6 and 12 cargo ships, then escape overland to Spain. Permission for the raid was granted on the 13th of October, 1942, but Admiral Luis Mountbatten, chief of combined operation, increased the number of canoes to be taken to six. What kind of mind would think that six canoes with mines would be the best plan of attack on submarines? But it is the act of night. But how do you come to that conclusion to use canoes? Are they picked up on radar? Canoes? Yeah. I, I guess not. They wouldn't have to be. If that were the case, that's like... Well, the whole point of using the canoes was that they were, had sea mines in the water around some of the German ships. So while trying to avoid, basically, like, German ships at night searching the, like, the boats and stuff yeah. in the perimeter, they had to also avoid these mines. But it's powered so by the, men traveling all these miles on canoes against weather conditions. And there were no motors at all? No. They just, were just paddles. That sounds fucking crazy. Sounds like an Olympic like triathlon yeah. type stuff. That's, I, it, it, just like having to steer around like mines to drop a fucking bomb into the water. <laughs> then hightail it out of there. <laughs> It's just crazy to think, dude. Well, Mountbatten had originally ordered that Hassler could not take part in the raid because of his experience as the chief canoeing specialist, but changed his mind after Hassler, the only man with experience in small boats, formally submitted his reasons for inclusion. The RMBPD started training for the raid on the 20th of October, 1942. The training included canoe handling, submarine rehearsals, limpet mine handling, and escape and evasion exercises. The RMBPD practiced for the raid with a simulated attack against Step Fort starting from Margate and canoeing up the Swall. The Mark II boats were given this better specification to enable heavier loads to be carried. The Mark II canoes, which were given the code name of Cockle, these were also known as the, the Cockle Warriors, um, which we'll talk about later. Um, that's what their official title was. Were selected for the raid. The Mark II was a semi-rigid two-man canoe with the sides made of canvas, a flat bottom, and 15 feet in length. When collapsed, it had the capability of negotiating the narrow confines of the submarine to the storage area. Then, before it was ready to be taken on the deck, erected and stored ready to be hauled out via the submarine torpedo hatch. During the raid, each canoe's load would be two men, eight limpet mines, three sets of paddles, a compass, a depth-sounding reel, a repair bag, torch, camouflage net, waterproof watch, fishing line, and two hand grenades, rations and water for about six to eight days, and a spanner to activate the mines and a magnet to hold the canoe against the side of the cargo ships. The total safe load for the Cockle Mark II was 480 pounds. The men also carried a .45 ACP pistol and a fairband size fighting knife, which is like a fishing knife. So basically, the gear the crew used was literally the same stuff used in their practice runs. So they were basically, it was second nature to them. They were already familiar with how to use it. They didn't need anything else. 
they have this small load capacity to make the canoe as light as possible to be able to travel at a fast distance. I mean, you're, you got to think it's two guys rowing a 480 yeah. pound canoe. So let me just get this right. So the submarine would be surfacing in the, like inside in, in the center of a like minefield. The right? submarine would surface outside of an area that would be, you can't go with mines. You can't you can't have a sub go underwater. They have those underwater mines and yeah. stuff. You can't do that. So what they would do is, without risk of being captured, the sub would probably be like 60 miles out from where they needed to be, drop these people off, and then they would swim through the... Because there were river embankments. So the sub can't go in the rivers. Yeah. So they, they would just... They, they, these guys would canoe down the rivers or canoe down into the area where they were supposed to go, navigating all the mines and the... the boats and everything, the patrol units, and then bomb these subs. These so they would sneak onto the submarine, right? Am I getting that right? No. Okay, so they arrive on a submarine. Yeah. Their canoes are transported by submarine with yes. them in it. Okay. Once their submarine gets up to the surface, they get released. Then they paddle 60, 80 miles all the way to passing all the enemy lines, going over into enemy boundaries, and attacking the enemy ships, which are the enemy subs. The subs would be surfaced for trading. This is how they traded their resources. The Germans, the Nazis, all them, they were very known for submarine warfare type technology. That's their whole, a lot of their trading came that way. It was an easy way for them to trade. But also their ships, they had ships they would bomb too. But they would use these, when they pulled up on the canoe, would pull up magnet to the side of the, uh, the uh, ship or something in their canoe and then plant these mines. And then they would go paddle away. And then the next thing you know, they would explode these ships. It's, it's, a, it's an insane way um, of style of attack, for sure. And by the cover of night, too. And also, That's fucking insane. Just dealing with the weather. You have to go with how the seas are going to go. You don't know if the sea's going to be choppy or not. Yeah, these guys could just get screwed. By, like, one wave. Yeah. Like... A rogue wave. Yeah. So, the men selected to go on the raid were divided in two divisions, each having their own targets. The men in Division A went on night practices in various rivers and harbors where they learned to paddle slightly over dozens of miles. This helped with creeping up on the enemy ships. It was... Division A was filled with Hassler and Marine Bill Sparks and Canoe Catfish... Colonel Albert Lavier and Marine William Mills in Canoe Crayfish, and Corporal George Sheard and Marine David Moffat in Canoe Conger. The B Division, each crew had their own detailed target and report also given eight mines to do the job. Lieutenant John Mackinnon and Marine James Conway in Canoe Cuttlefish, Sergeant Samuel Wallace and Marine Robert Ewart in Canoe Coalfish, and Marine W.A.L. Ellery and Marine E. Fisher and Canoe Catchalot. So what would you like your canoe name to be? You got Catfish, Crayfish, Conger, Cuttlefish, Coalfish, Catchalot. Pufferfish. That is not one of the toy choices. It was Cuttlefish, but okay. Well, I thought you were saying what I would name mine. Oh, you would name it Pufferfish? Yeah. Why Pufferfish? I like Pufferfish. Okay. What the hell do you want from me? <laughs> name mine like tilapia or something <laughs> we're going off fish names so a 13th man was taken as a reserve his name was marine norman collie 
Germans resupplying at French harbors led to this mission, needing a way to stop the forces while the Royal Navy had its own problems. So the British Royal Navy and the fleet could not deal with the trading that was going on, couldn't worry about this amount of ships getting the resources. So they had to recruit this team to do Operation Franklin to, to complete the mission of what, you know, it would have been a benefit. It's only going to help them if they stop trading with Paris. Yeah. So on the 30th of November, 1942, under the command of Lieutenant Commander Dick Reich's DSO, the Royal Navy submarine HMS Tuna sailed from Holy Lock in Scotland with the six canoes and raiders on board. The submarine was supposed to reach the Garoti Estuary, and the mission was scheduled to start on the 6th of December, 1942. This was delayed because bad weather en route and the need to negotiate a minefield. By the 7th of December, 1942, the submarine had reached the estuary and surfaced some 10 miles from the mouth of the estuary. So like we were saying, when it comes to weather conditions being a problem... Imagine having these choppy waves. You're trying to navigate a minefield. Yeah, just like get it pushed right into a mine. You boom, right into you're a done. Mine. So canoe Catchalot's hull was actually um, damaged while passing out of the submarine hatch. So it only just left five canoes to start the raid. The reserve member of the team, Kali, was not needed, so he remained about the submarine with the Catchalot's crew, Ellery and Fisher. So already one. Other canoes is eliminated. So now they're down to five. So that's only ten men. So according to Tuna's log, the five remaining canoes were disembarked at 19.30 hours on 7th of December. However, sources defer on the start time between 1936 and 2022. The plan was for the crews to paddle and the rest for five minutes in every hour. The first night, 7th to the 8th of December, Fighting against strong cross tides and crossed winds, canoe coalfish had disappeared. Further on, the surviving crews encountered five feet high waves and canoe conger capsized and was lost. The crew consisting of Sheard and Moffat held on the two of the remaining crews, which carried them as close to the shore as possible and had to swim ashore. Carrying on with the raid, the canoes approached a major checkpoint in the river and came upon three German frigates. So two of the crews wrecked because of poor weather conditions. The conger and the cuttlefish. Five-foot wave just screwed one of them. God. So you got to think. These weather conditions were bad. They literally didn't even wait for it to clear up. They just waited for it to get a little bit better, which it delayed it a full 24 hours. And it also trying to do that and avoid patrol boats during these horrible conditions. So put everything they're dealing with. And at night, you're trying to function around landmines, choppy water at night. It's, there's a reason why, like, there's so many World War II buffs. There's a reason if someone puts this on your desk and they're like, that's a suicide mission. Well, you're going on it anyway. Alright, shit. So lying flat on the canoes and paddling silently, they managed to get by without being discovered, but became separated from Mackinnon and Conway in canoe cuttlefish. That's one of the ones that went down. On the first night, the three remaining canoes, catfish, crayfish, and coalfish, covered 20 miles in five hours and landed near St. Vivian Dumont. What happened to the third one? What do you mean? Because the two capsized. What happened to the third one? The one didn't get to leave. Oh, shit. Yeah, fuck. The one didn't even get to go on the mission. He's like the guy that um they, they had to stay back with the reserve guy. Yeah. On the submarine. It's like when the 
uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went to space, and the one guy stayed in the spacecraft <laughs> while the others walked on the moon. So, you know, they already they've already paddled over twenty miles now in, in five hours. So while they were hiding during the day and unknown to the others, Wallace and Uward and Colfish had been captured at daybreak near the Point Dare Grave Lighthouse, where they had come ashore. By the end of the second night, 8th to 9th of December, the two remaining canoes, Catfish and Crayfish, now that Coldfish got captured, had paddled a further 22 miles in six hours. The third ninth, 9th to the 10th of December, they paddled 15 miles, and on the fourth night, the 10th to the 11th of December, because of the strong ebb tide, they only managed to cover nine miles. The original plan had called for the raid to be carried out on the 10th of December, but Hassler now changed the plan. Because of the strength of the tide, they had a short distance to paddle, so Hassler ordered they hide for another day and set off and reach Bordeaux in the night of 11 to 12 of December. After a night's rest, the men spent the day preparing their equipment at Limbit Mines, which they were set to detonate at 2100 hours. Hassler decided that catfish would cover the western side of the docks and crayfish the eastern side. Now, being limited to only two canoes, they had to devise a strategy to work together to make sure that they could destroy everything there instead of just leaving some of it. Because they only had eight mines each, so every little bit had to count. They had to put it in proper key points. So in Bordeaux, the two remaining canoes, Catfish and Crayfish, reached Bordeaux on the 5th night, 11th to 12th of December. The river was flat, calm, and there was a clear sky. The attack started at 2100 hours on the 11th of December. Hassler and Sparks and Catfish attacking shipping on the west side of the dock placed eight limpet mines on four vessels, including a spur-breacher patrol boat. A sentry on the deck of the spur breacher, apparently spotting something, shone his torch down toward the water, but the camouflage canoe evaded detection in the darkness. They have planted all their mines and left the harbor with the ebb tide at 45 hours. At the same time, Lavier and Mills and Crayfish had reached the eastern side of the dock without finding any targets, so returned to deal with the ships docked at the Basins. They placed eight limpet mines on two vessels, five on a large cargo ship, and three on a small liner. On their way downriver, the two canoes met by chance on the Isle Cazot. They continued downriver until six hours when they breached their canoes near St. Jean's de Blay and tried to hide them by sinking them. The two crews then set out separately on foot for the Spanish border. After two days, Lavier and Mills were apprehended at Montlagarde by the Gendarmerie and handed over to the Ger Germans. Hasler and Sparks arrived at the French town of Ruffec, 100 miles from where they had beached their canoe on the 18th of December, 1942. So, out of the two crews, they've ditched their canoes, they've set the bombs, they've done all this, and now they've been walking for two days. Lavier and Mills. So, do you remember what canoe Lavier and Mills were on? No. Out of the two remaining uh, canoes were Catfish and Crayfish. So, they were on Crayfish. So, Lavier, the two guys that were captured were on Crayfish. They got captured. So, now we're just down to the Catfish that had Hassler and uh, some other guy on there. So, you got to think. Out of all these men, you only have two left. The other two got captured. You have to chalk up that are dead. So, 
Hassler and Sparks arrived at the French town of Ruffec, like I said, 100 miles from where they had beached their canoe. They made contact with someone from the French resistance at the Hotel de la Toque Blanc and were taken to a local farm. They spent the next 18 days there in hiding. They were then guided across the Pyrenees, uh, the Pyrenees into Spain. It was not until the 23rd of February, 1943, that Combined Operations Headquarters heard via a secret message sent by Mary Lindell to the War Office that Hassler and Sparks were safe. On the 2nd of April, 1943, Hassler arrived back in Britain by air from Gibraltar, having passed through the French Resistance Escape Organization. Sparks was sent back by sea and arrived. So they've literally been hiding for like two months. They, they, the whole government thinks they're dead. They don't know. They haven't heard any contact. And they finally get contact. Hey, we're still alive. We've been traveling and trying to hide in secret from the Germans. So the aftermath. On the 10th of December, the Germans announced that a sabotage squad had caught off on 8th of December near the mouth of Garonde and finished off in combat. It was not until January 1943, in the absence of other information, all 10 men on the raid were posted missing until news arrived of two of them. Later, it was confirmed that five ships had been damaged in Bordeaux by mysterious explosions. This information remained until new research in 2010 revealed that the sixth ship had been damaged, even more extensively than any other five reported. This research also revealed that the other five ships hold were back in service very shortly afterwards. So, their plan worked, but it was temporary. It didn't. Yeah, didn't do a whole lot of damage. Like they fixed them back up and got them back on there, but it, it might have slowed them down a little bit of time for the Royal Navy to be able to. Every little bit yeah. adds up and wins a war. You know, like shit. Like imagine, imagine being a soldier tasked with that mission. Like it's 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 thrown upon your desk like a suicide mission. You got to go into your head knowing that. And these guys, just being... Imagine escaping through the jungles and trying, like, to get out of this area in Spain. Must... Like, that must have been the most intense couple of months of those men's lives, you know? Like... And then only only two of them coming back of, like, the five that went. So they were... Were they killed? After being captured? The ten men? Yeah. Yeah. That's fucked. The two guys were killed for sure. They were executed by the Germans. But the ten men, the other guys didn't even make it that went down in just the weather conditions. Or not the other ten guys, the other eight guys that just went down in weather conditions. Two of the men got captured and killed. And the other two made it through the jungles and survived. So for their part in the raid, Hassler was awarded a Distinguished Service Order and Sparks a Distinguished Service Medal. Lavier and Mills were also recommended for the DSM, which at the time could not be awarded posthumously, so instead they were mentioned in the dispatches. Those are the two guys that got captured and killed. They were awarded a medal, but they were just put in the newspaper, not really. Can't give a missing person, maybe to their family. But of the men who never returned, Wallace and Ewart were captured on the 8th of December at the Point of Grave near La Verdun and revealed only certain information during their interrogation and were executed under the commando order on the night of 11th of December in a sand pit in a wood north of Bordeaux and not at the Chateau Magnol Blankfort. 
A plague has been erected on the bullet-marked wall of the chateau, but the authenticity of the details on the plaque had been questioned, indeed given the evidence of a statement by a German officer who was at the actual execution. There can be no doubt that the chateau has no link with Wallace and Ewart. A small memorial can also be seen at the point the grave where they were captured in March 2011. A $100,000 memorial was unveiled at this same spot. After the Royal Marines were executed by a naval firing squad, the commander of the Navy, Admiral Eric Rader, wrote in the Skritzenslerg War Diary that the executions of the captured Royal Marines were something new in an unintentional law. Since the soldiers were wearing uniforms, the American historian Charles Thomas wrote that Reader's remarks about the executions in the Skritzenslerg War Diary seemed to be some sort of ironic comment, which meant have reflected a bad conscience on the part of the radar. After having been set ashore, McCannon and Conway managed to evade capture for four days, but they were betrayed and arrested by the Gendarmerie and handed over to the Germans at La Royal Hospital 30 miles southeast of Bordeaux, attempting to make their escape way to the Spanish border. McKinnon had been admitted to the hospital for treatment of an infected knee. The exact date of the execution is not known. Evidence shows that McCannon, Lavier, Mills, and Conway were not executed in Paris in 1942, but possibly in the same location as Wallace and Ewart under the commando order. So you got to think, when they said they were betrayed, that means the... Because the, the, French was supposed to be neutral. Yeah. So they were trading with the Germans and also helping us out. They betrayed us. And two of them escaped told, told through the, the French escape. Yeah. You know? So they were good French and they were bad French. Like they were on our side and they also weren't. They seemed like, eh, how is this going to benefit me in the long run? That was their whole yeah. aspect of everything. So just just hearing all this from these guys, what, what has already come to your conclusion on just the, the operation in general? They were known as the Cockle Shell Hero Royal Marines. They sound like actual action heroes, you know? Like that that kind of... And, you know, because they're not, like, they're not, like, action here. Like, like they're normal soldiers. Like, a lot of people could have been in that situation, but a lot of people weren't. These guys, like, rose to their occasion and fucking... Well, they finally got a permanent memorial unveiled in um, Conway in the city of Stockport on the 10th of December in 2017. It's known as the Cockleshell War Hero Memorial. Um, in a 1955 fictionalized version of the story was told in the film The Cockleshell Heroes, made by Warwick Films, and starring Anthony Newley, Trevor Howard, Christopher Lee, David Lodge, and Jose Ferrer. I'd was actually... also the director. Christopher Lee? I'd, I'd love... Like, this sounds like a movie. That kind of operation, that's a total, like... I'd love to see that, actually. I might look that up later. Well, the film was a box office hit in 1956 and was quickly followed by the publication of Brigadier C.E. Lucas Phillips' book of the same name. Blondie Hassler had connections with both the film and the book. He hated the title of both and walked away from his role as a technical advisor for the former to try and set the matter right in the later years. In June 2002, the Franklin Trail was opened, a walking path which traces the 100-mile route taken that occupied through France on foot by Hassler and Sparks. 
The Frankton Souvenir is an Angelo French organization set up to keep alive the story of the raid. It plans to develop the trail and install explanatory plaques at key points. On the 31st of March 2011, a memorial to the Cockleshell heroes and three French individuals were dedicated, made from Portland stone. It was transported across care of Brittany Ferries. The memorial cost about eighty thousand dollars. That sounds like so, that sounds like a vacation, just to like go and like go and tackle that trail and then like visit the war memorial. It's not just a vacation. Like, not it's a, vacation. It's history. Like a, like a journey, you know. Yeah. Well, you gotta think. Out of all these miles, they're traveling canoes and having to walk a hundred miles. Like what? Like, who has, uh, in just the, the strength and determination, but also fear of knowing if you get captured, but just all in the mindset of you're doing this to help your country, you're doing this to save little your mom back home, your brother back home, your family. That's what had to have gotten through it, like, Jesus. Like, that, that fire that uh, burns in us to keep us going and pushing when it seems like all, like, you should just give up, like, when life... You know, that's what really, like, sets in your perspective when you're thinking, like, it's just too hard. Yeah, but there's been people in harder situations than you have, you could ever even think to imagine. And the fact that you have this opportunity, don't you want to see if you can overcome it? Don't you want to see if you can move on? Like, when someone gets a terminal illness, you know, do you want, you want to see that you can move past it? Don't you want to see you can overcome it? You want to try your best. You want to yeah. make sure you're in control of your life, not someone in control of your own. And the fact that they're doing this to try and help their country because they believe in something so much really brings into the whole aspects of what really fuels war. Is it devotion? Is it just curiosity? Is it the art of being the top dog? What is it? There's many factors that play, and you can chalk it up to anything. But the fact that someone could have such willingness to go on and move forward knowing that your friends are dead and captured and it's like no one knows you're alive out there they think the same thing of you so you know no search teams are looking for you is ridiculous what an excellent story god it's definitely something that should be more popularized i mean i know it's not in our history but like i said before it's something it's history it's human history it's human perseverance to continue forward when it seems like all hope is lost like, it is part of, because they're part of the Allied forces, you know? Like Yeah, but it's not part of America. American it doesn't glorify yeah. America, so they're not going to teach us about it. Well. I'd much rather learn about this than Magellan circumnavigating Magellan. the freaking globe. <laughs> Which is also important, but fuck. It's not. It's not relatable. Six canoes attacking German forces and traveling 100 miles and... Like, the farther back you go, the more it's like a fairy tale, almost. Like a... It's definitely something out of a story book. And this, that's just like... I call it a story. It's like, it's, a war, it, it's like a war story where it's like you feel like the results got exaggerated, but this is what really happened. Yeah. Like there's like, documented information on it. Like, just taking out all of the possible exaggerations in your head. Like, just... Like, the boat's getting knocked over by rogue waves and, like having to traverse through mines, it's, like, the most, like, mundane that could possibly be is, like, still insane. I think like, we need to take the trip to uh, Portland and uh, see this memorial of the Cockleshell Heroes. Man. That'd be awesome, dude. 
Well, for anybody that enjoyed this fill in the blank on the cockle shell heroes, look up. Um, it's called Operation Frankton. And like I said, it was a, a commando raid on the shipping in the German-occupied French port of Bordeaux in southwest France during the Second World War. Sponsored by the United Kingdom. And shout out to the Royal Navy. The Queen's men. <laughs> um, thank you, Evan, for being on this episode of Fill in the Blank. And Excellent episode. If this uh, topic interests anybody, uh, look it up. Operation Frankton.